Hi everyone, my name is Nisreen Kamal. I am the Arabic editor of the China Global South project. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about the work we're doing before you get to today's podcast. So basically, if you check the news to look for stories about China's ties with the United States or Europe, you will definitely find a lot. But when it comes to stories about China's relations with developing countries, which we call the Global South, it's a different situation. So this is where we come in because we provide you with in-depth analysis and daily reporting about China's activities in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and even the Americas. And our services are available in three languages, which are English, Arabic, and French. So you can subscribe to our services for only $15 a month. You can try it for free for 30 days at chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Thank you. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and for the 13th year, I am joined by my co-host in lovely Cape Town, South Africa, Kobus Van Staten, Global South's Managing Editor. Happy New Year to you, Kobus, and welcome to our 13th year of this broadcast. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. Well, this is the first show of the New Year, so... What we like to do with these January shows is try and step back a little bit and look ahead, just as we did at the end of the year with our good friend Jude Moore, where we look back on 2022. This time, we what we want to do is look forward at 2023 and what's happening. Already, it's off to a very interesting start. China's new foreign minister, Qing Gang, he is in Africa. Unfortunately, at the time of this recording, he has not completed his five-nation tour. He's going to Ethiopia, Gabon, Angola, Benin, Egypt, and he's also going to make two stops at regional organizations, the African Union and the League of Arab States headquarters while he is in Cairo. So Kobus, Chingang is new to Africa. His background is largely in European and American affairs. Of course, he's most well-known for most recently as being the Chinese ambassador to the United States. We published a fascinating Q&A that I did with Paul Nantulia, who's one of the top China-Africa scholars, and he's at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington. And he provided some fascinating insights about what Qinggang should know about Africa and what Africans should know about Qinggang. This is something you have been thinking about as well. Let's ask you a two-part question just to start. What do you think Qinggang should know about Africa? Well, you know, here, I'm, you know, as you say, I'm, I'm drawing on Paul's insights. But, you know, one of the main things is that, that Africa is just a, a lot younger and much more vibrant and much more dynamic population. And so, therefore, the kind of traditional tools of state engagement that the Chinese have tended to focus on may not be enough to really engage the population. And at the same time, it would be useful for him and for, for Chinese leadership generally to think about, about Africa 
America as, as you know, essentially as where China was a few decades ago, with this very similar kind of rapidly growing middle class, very similar um, hunger for technological uptake, and, uh, and a general kind of like real kind of like need and desire for economic growth and job creation particularly. So, you know, kind of if job creation is, is front and center in, in, in his approach to Africa, then that's a, a good start. Well, let's then flip the script and then say, you know, Qingang is a new face in African diplomacy. Former Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who has now been elevated to the Politburo, he was in that office for nine years. So that allowed Wang to become very well known to develop deep relationships. He got to know every foreign minister, every head of state. They don't know Qin. He's a new, again, a new face in the African diplomatic scene. What do you think they should know about him and what he represents in terms of why Xi Jinping appointed him to the role? He comes from a school of thought um, that thinks that China should take on a larger foreign policy role in the world, um, commensurate with its economic power. And so he is naturally kind of moving towards a, a more prominent space for China and a, and a more and, and and a space where China would be able to work with African countries on many levels, including on a multilateral level. You know, and and to a large extent, I think Xi Jinping is 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 very much in tune with that thinking. And and you know, kind of part of what what is interesting about it is is that that Qingang has also managed to rise through the ranks very rapidly. He is also young, so he's you know he's, he's in is in his mid fifties, um, which means that he will probably have this job for a long time, and that he has a lot of a lot of kind of potential for upward uh, kind of movement as well. You know, in the Chinese government, so he could be a real kind of central shaper of Chinese foreign policy and and, and African engagement for a long time. So it's it's really important, you know, kind of to really kind of get on board with his thinking and, you know, and, and his approach. Okay, well, let's step back now from the Qin visits. And again, we're going to have a deep dive on that in the next week or two after he's completed his tour of the continent and of the AU and the Arab League headquarters as well. So we'll bring you more on the Qin visit later on. But for now, let's talk about all of the issues that are now confronting the China-Africa relationship. We've talked about this all last year, that it's in a period of transition and, uh, and this is no better time than to look at it, and there's no better person than to join us, is Hannah Ryder, who is the CEO of Develop and Reimagined. For those of you not familiar with Hannah, she's been in this space uh, longer than almost anybody. Uh, also, what's interesting about what Hannah and her team at DR are doing is that they work equally on the African side and with Chinese stakeholders. So she has a very unique vantage on this. Hannah, I looked through our records and it turns out that in the 13 years of this broadcast, you are number one in terms of frequency as a guest on this show. So we are thrilled to have you back as our first guest of 2023. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Eric and Kobus. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you very much also for inviting me so many times to be on the podcast. Um, I feel like it's been a long time, though. It hasn't. I think I personally haven't been on for quite a while, maybe since early 2020. But I know several members of my team have. So Thank you again. We are thrilled to have you back. It has been a while, but it just shows you how far back we all go in talking about these issues. And so we're going to talk today about finance, trade, and people-to-people -people flows, because those are the big areas of the relationship that, again, are undergoing so much change right now. And what we want to try and do is help people look, what I say, look around the corner to see the parts of, this ch of these trends that you don't always see. 
But, you know, Hannah, just before we get started, we talked about the Qinggang visit. Qinggang is a new face. I'd love to get your perspective and follow up on what Kobus was saying in terms of what do Africans need to know about Qin and the new leadership in Beijing? And what does the new leadership in Beijing need to know about Africa and Africans and where they are today? If you could kind of give us your take on that before we go into some of the other topics, that would be great. Yeah, from so from, from my perspective and, of course, the analysis that we've done in our team, um, look, this is, I believe, since 2007, Chinese leadership, whether it's foreign ministers, the president or premier, have paid 123 visits to the continent. Now, that's less than African leaders have visited China. We've got 251 by African leaders, according to our count. But, you know, this is a long tradition. And so even though this is Chin's first official visit um, and it's his first official overseas visit, of course, it, it continues a tradition and it continues a theme that I think even the African Union representative in China was very keen to emphasize when he was talking about kind of the relationship with China at the end of 2022, the, the promise of continuity in the relationship. So I think that's definitely something that he will be emphasizing. But also, given that his visit is coming just after China has reopened its borders to the world after you know, effectively three years of quite significant isolation. And although trade with the continent has remained fairly robust over that period, definitely a key ambition that I'm sure Jim will have will be to sort of reassure um, African partners, countries of the commitment to strengthen economic ties, kind of deliver on the FOCAC commitments back in 2021, um, and including through stronger cross-border people movement. I mean, most Africans have not been able to visit China. I had the pleasure, thankfully, uh, towards the end of uh, last year to be able to do that. Um, and it was a great opportunity, but many haven't. And it's been quite challenging for, although many people have built up new business models dealing with it, nevertheless, it will be great for African business people in particular and professionals to be able to go to China and to make deals and the other way around, have Chinese business people come to African countries, resume their deals, both on the loan and investment side and the trade side uh, that were going on prior to COVID. So I think those will be his key priorities. But nevertheless, those are very important areas for Qinggang to be working on and emphasizing. And I would also mention, of course, the African Union Commission aspect of the discussion. I know, I know you're going to have a much more in-depth discussion of all of this. But the African Union visit, I think, is quite significant too, because even though the last visit by Foreign Minister Wang Yi to the African Union Commission was just in 2019, the Chinese president and Wang Yi publicly supported the African Union's bid to be permanently represented in the G20, and, and that would involve representation of the African Union Commission. So this is the first opportunity for the chairperson to discuss the practicalities of that membership. We've still got India to confirm its views, but also to um, have China support for a number of African positions in G20 and other multilateral forums and so on. So it's, an, it's a great opportunity to really fully understand the landscape of African countries, not just on a bilateral level, but also a multilateral level. So, you know, one of the, the fields that you've been working in a lot uh, um, over the last year has also been one of the most kind of newsworthy and controversial kind of parts of the Africa-China relationship over the last while, which is financing and debt. So I was wondering, you know, kind of the, there was a lot of talk about about debt crises, about, you know, kind of like very, very kind of like tortured kind of debt renegotiation processes and so on in, in countries like Zambia through, throughout um, 2022. And I was wondering kind of what you, what you think of that of, of 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 that year like what we've seen over the year around those issues and what that looks like for you in 2023 yeah great question and i think it is a question on everyone's mind 
um, really as to, to what's going to be happening in terms of finance and China's role in finance on the African continent. Now, I should preface everything that I'm going to say with a general point that we at Development Reimagined always try to say is that the African continent really has far too little debt to be able to deliver its Agenda 2063 goals and and sustainable development goals. I mean, there is no way that taxes can be raised domestically to be able to provide the level of infrastructure that's needed um, for efficient regional production and manufacturing, to be able to provide the levels of energy of access to make sure that 600 million people don't have, uh, actually get electricity. Um, that don't have at the moment. So when we talk about debt and we talk about kind of, if people talk about too much debt, it's generally, it really grates as a kind of a starting point because of course it might be too much debt relative to, it might be a, a challenging level of debt relative to economic size of particular countries, but they need a way to escape and to be able to grow their economies. So that's, that's the number one factor that I think everyone really should remember in all of this, however much is being discussed about relief of existing debt levels because debt service payments might be really challenging and so on. There's still a question about how the international financial architecture is able to provide a stronger level of debt, larger volumes of debt, while still making sure that countries can function. And I think we've got to a point where there are some countries, a few African countries, and I would again emphasise a few African countries, that have found themselves in a, in a challenging situation um, for being able to meet their existing debt service payments. And there's no doubt there'll be a few more over 2023 if growth doesn't recover fast enough, if growth doesn't accelerate fast enough, uh, that also find themselves in that situation. But I would also say that if you look at some of the forecasts, which is often not really emphasised, and we have a, an infographic that just came out on this, you know, it's six of the fastest growing countries in the world... Uh, are again going to be African. Um, African growth as a continent in 2023 is going to outpace the rest of the world. So again, we've got to be a little bit cautious with the sort of doom and gloom mentality and doom and gloom predictions about 2023. I think there was a lot of doom and gloom about 2020 when it came to COVID-19, but African governments worked together, came together, found ways, there was a lot of resilience on the continent, coordinated, and that's how they managed these situations. And I think those kinds of lessons will be just as important this time uh, in 2023, but with regards to finance, not COVID-19. So I guess the question then is, where will the capital come from to stimulate that growth? And so the Chinese have cut back on their lending considerably, not just in Africa, but in many developing markets. They're directing more of that money to their own domestic needs. Uh, it's not healthy to go to the euro bond market because the short-term repayments of those oftentimes put a lot of pressure on African governments. So if it's not from Eurobonds, not from the Chinese, the World Bank and the IMF don't have enough capital to finance the entire continent's growth. And that also adds to the debt burden as well. Where does the money come from to build the infrastructure, to finance the growth, and to do all of the things that need to be done in order to have buoyant economies? Well, I think, Eric, three things. Um, first of all, if we're talking about World Bank and IMF, there is a big push at the moment um, in the kind of development finance community, which, again, we're very strongly involved in and working really hard on um, to encourage the World Bank and IMF to do more to open up the existing capital and also the other multilateral development banks. There's a big project to kind of open that up and it's, it's very much led by 
uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley, and there's a number of other experts who've been working on it, who are they're really leading the charge to kind of say how do how do the World Bank and IMF reform their business models in many ways to be able to leverage a lot more capital to be able to lend a lot more, and that could provide some of the answer. The second er, the second point I'd make, Eric, is that I think. It's too early to say that Chinese lending is fallen and has fallen permanently. It has fallen since a big peak in 2016 when there was a significant loan to Angola. Um, but for most African countries, it has not necessarily fallen. And in many cases, they've seen, you know, it's been it's been fairly volatile and, and mostly kind of demand dependent. And I think this comes to the fundamentals because one of the reasons why we have not seen much Chinese lending going ahead is, of course, COVID-19. We've not been able to have, you know, Exim Bank or other officials, Sinoshore, etc., to be able to go and check on particular projects and infrastructure projects that could go forward. Same with the business people and SOEs that might have been kind of putting forward uh, ideas for new infrastructure or other types of projects on the African continent. But I would also say there's many African countries who themselves have kind of been a little bit worried about taking on new debt obligations and being kind of pushed to worry about debt sustainability thresholds. Now, again, Development Reimagined, we do have analysis on why debt sustainability thresholds are basically not very helpful. They're fairly irrelevant to the African continent. They don't come from evidence from the African continent. But nevertheless, and again, that's... I'm sorry, can I, can I just interrupt you there very quickly? What do you mean by debt sustainability threshold? Because I'm not sure everybody understands what that means. Okay. So I think many people will be familiar with the idea that many African countries are under pressure to keep their debt levels as, let's say, something like 60% of their GDP. Okay. And in some cases, that's even written into legislature. Um, so the government then has to report to the parliament if it wants to go ahead. Uh, in Ghana, for example, the government did breach that and then had to report to parliament and ask for a different, um, different threshold. Uh, and because of COVID-19. And so, yeah, that's what I mean. But where does that 60% come from? That's a big question. Where does 80% come from as a kind of a sign of healthiness of, of external debt? And when you look at the evidence, number one, the debt service thresholds, 60% is a number which is picked out of a number of articles and analysis, but they're never they're not with relationship to developing countries. It's in relationship to European, North American countries. Second of all, those thresholds are also heavily biased when it comes to African countries. So just as an example, in 2021, there were 64 countries in the world globally that had a debt-to-GDP ratio of over 60%. And how many of those were actually classified? And a third of those, by the way, were African. Okay, How many of those were actually classified as debt-distressed? There were 12, and all of them were African countries. And then by the time you get to 2022, you've got a larger number of countries 79 countries globally that have a debt-to-GDP threshold of over 60%. Oh, voila, 20, a third of those are also African. 23 of them are classified as debt-distressed. And again, all of those are African. I mean, incredible bias in the system. And it's why, for example, when you're talking about Eurobonds, Eric, and how Eurobond rates are high, that's because they use that kind of analysis, which kind of has this sort of Africa risk premium. And really, you know, uh, 
and means that interest rates that are imposed on, uh, that are required when uh, bonds need to be repaid are much higher than you'll find elsewhere. Uh, and so these are, these are exactly the reasons for that. And it's a fundamental problem, structural problem with the international financial system, which no, no one African country is going to resolve. Um, but it also means that African publics, African leaders and business people should also be rather careful when we talk about and take seriously debt service threshold or debt um, debt to GDP thresholds, um, as I mentioned. So that's another issue that governments have been worried about them, you know, and because they are of this label that really does have a material effect. But it also means that when they're discussing uh, opportunities with China, they haven't necessarily been putting forward new opportunities with China. Or what they've been saying is, we want to go forward with opportunities with you, but we'd like to make them PPPs. There's so many African countries that are saying, well, we're really still open to business with you, Chinese organizations, but we need you to make it a PPP, a public-private partnership, uh, because we can't take on any more debt because we will then be classified as debt distressed by this outside organization, by the IMF, by the World Bank, even if we do or don't agree with their own analysis. So that's another factor as to why Chinese lending um, has not necessarily been strong, which means that I think in 2023, I do think that we will see a number of new announcements of... Uh, of infrastructure projects and, and lending from China and traditional, you know, very traditional lending from China, from Exim Bank, CDB, etc. And it might be limited in size, but I also wouldn't say I wouldn't rule out large projects, and I also definitely wouldn't rule out large infrastructure, regional infrastructure projects, and in particular because uh, there is a commitment in the Forum in China Africa Corporation uh, in 2021 for ten new regional connectivity project uh, to be agreed uh, by uh, over in in that in the FOCAC period so we still need to see what those are uh, and and those those still need to be announced so I think we can kind of keep that area fairly open and then the third area that I'd mention in terms of how that finance is is generated you know and again there's a lot of talk about innovative ways of trying to generate new finance for African countries um, some of which is engaging China. Um, we can talk a little bit about the G20 Common Framework, which I think is less innovative than others. But people are talking about things like debt for climate swaps, other types of swaps. These are means of kind of debt relief. And then there's also new facilities that are being created. We have been talking about something called a borrower's club, uh, which we are working on with, an in with a number of international um, financial organizations on and seeing if they're interested and kind of thinking about the modalities that that could work. And that's a way these kind of innovative mechanisms could also be ways for countries to raise new finance um, in a different way. And hopefully China can also engage with some of these ideas as well. You mentioned the Borrowers Club. I wonder if you could like explain a little bit about how that would actually work. So the idea behind a borrowers club is kind of what it says on the tin is for borrowers to come together, kind of prospective borrowers to come together and to put together to themselves, be very much accountable for the projects and to come up with projects themselves and be accountable to each other for the projects. It's really similar. If you think about it in the in, in the development world, we're really familiar with that idea from something called the Grameen Bank, uh, which was first come up, a uh, Nobel laureate came up with that some years ago in the in the 70s and the idea of that was to have local kind of villages come together they would be provided with an overall loan and they would go and decide what's done with it and it was found in fact that because of their own accountability to each other the borrowers and the way that they repaid they wouldn't be these villages themselves and i think very similar to a lot of 
African countries, um, they don't have enough collateral. They didn't have you know, enough land to be able to go and get the finance themselves as individuals. And many, for the African continent, many African countries don't have a large enough economic size to be able to go and get uh, the finance themselves from multilateral development banks, etc. Those banks will worry about those thresholds, etc. So the idea is that they actually come together and that's what provides the space uh, for them to go and get loans and then to repay them on a much easier, uh, they would repay them together slowly but surely uh, with different creditors. And it's something that any multilateral development bank um, can actually create. And it even can be created by borrowers together if they would like, and then bringing in creditors. So if I understand this correctly, this would be something that the African Development Bank, for example, would coordinate rather than finance ministries in individual African countries coming together. Because if it was the finance ministries that had to do it, it would require an unprecedented level of coordination among these various countries that don't really have a history of that type of transparency and working together on that level. Is that how it would work? It would work at the regional finance bank level or actually within the finance ministries or both? I mean, I think it can be both. I think there are a number of ways in which African finance ministers are coordinating more than they used to. For example, they have been coordinating with the UN Economic Commission for Africa underneath them. And also through COVID-19, that was a real push from UNECA, actually. I don't think either are sort of, they're not mutually exclusive, I would say. What the finance ministers would need, however, is a trustee. And only a trusted financial institution like the AFDB or, um, or World Bank or so on could actually provide that trustee function. So they would need something like that or a regional regional bank. Let's say if East African borrowers came together, they would need a regional bank to back them up as the trustee. But the trustee would not necessarily, and this, this I mean, this is a very typical process in many trust funds, like uh, there's a green climate fund, which has the World Bank as its trustee, but the World Bank has nothing to do with its actual operation and can't interfere in its operation. It literally kind of acts as the accountant, as it were, for that fund. And that's exactly what would happen in this case. And so since you launched the Borrowers Club idea, uh, was it last year, I think it was? Yes. Yeah. For- formally, yes. What has been the response from the street in London, from Wall Street, from the IMF, the World Bank? Has anybody said anything? I haven't seen too much about it. What's been the response that you've gotten from the people who would actually have cash in the game? Well, it takes a while, I would say. And I have had some significant discussions uh, with UN, very high-level UN officials uh, on this, as well as uh, I've just been recently appointed as well to the Organization for Educational Cooperation, uh, which is a new international organization, to work with them on what they're calling a, a common leveraging union for borrowers, which is a borrower's club. So there is there is significant interest, but I uh, I think our focus has really been on engaging African governments, engaging governments such as China as well on these sorts of ideas and really building it up. And then, and having them kind of push as opposed to necessarily going directly to IMF and, and World Bank. Uh, this needs to be a ground up discussion rather than uh, rather than something necessarily led by the IFIs themselves. 
moving to the uh, related discussion to trade, you know, the last FOCAC summit in the, at the in late 2021 um, was marked by this commitment from China that they're going to markedly increase agricultural trade with Africa, particularly through these this concept of green lanes facilitating agricultural imports from Africa. I was wondering, you know, kind of from from your perspective, how has how has how successful has that been so far? How much action have we seen on that front so far? And who are the the kind of key Chinese role players in, engaged in this process? Yeah, this has been a really interesting area. As I mentioned earlier, African-China trade has really held up to a good degree over the last few years and since FOCAC. And part of that has been to do with some increase in agricultural trade and new products coming into China. Now, whether or not those are definitely under the under the remit of green lanes, it's not very clear because even the guidance on green lanes still remains fairly unclear, although some more guidance, some guidance did come out in August 2022 on what these were. Um, but the kind of most notably a real push at the level of business and trade and embassies and so on to open up China for more agricultural products from Africa. So we've seen products coming in from dried Durand and Chile, more South African citrus fruits, Kenyan avocados, you'll have heard a lot about um, last year. Tanzanian avocados has just recently been agreed. And there's also some more products that are likely to come in. I won't give you or tell you exactly what they are, um, but we, we I'm sure we will hear a lot more in 2023 about those more products coming in. And of course, and then there's some countries like Ethiopia that have also had more access uh, through duty-free protocols that have come in. Um, and there have been all these shopping festivals, etc., for online products. And, you know, we ourselves have been trying to even get to, to continue to push a number of uh, African brands in China, which we've discussed with you before, um, coffee, wine and cosmetics and, and fashion. And those have done quite well over the time. And then we've also seen a number of Chinese players, as you mentioned, Cobus, really also trying to get involved and to support, provide more support in this area. So I'm very practical support. So support with kind of registering for export into China, um, support for storage of products in uh, in certain provinces, like um, certain areas like Nansha, and then um, some Chinese organizations uh, in Certain provinces like Hunan uh, are even offering support with branding for the Chinese market and product feedback. And there's also product feedback, which is being provided by kind of large company, large Chinese companies who are looking for African products as well. So the trade facilitation has definitely been increasing. But I think in 2023, we can see, I would expect that we will see that more, there'll be more announcements of products, but also that tr trade facilitation should actually start to bear more fruit. And I think one of the key milestones that is worth people keeping an eye out for is the uh, Changsha uh, Economic and Trade Expo, which will be taking place uh, in June 2023. That will take place in Changsha in Hunan province. And that should that's a, that's going to be the third in the edition. It's, it's held every two years. And so I think that will be a key opportunity. And of course, with, with the opening up of China, hopefully we'll be able to bring delegations we will certainly be aiming to bring a, a number of uh, business delegations into into that expo. I want to get back to Changsha and Hunan and all the interesting things that are happening at the provincial level a little bit later, but come back to this conversation about trade. 
and agriculture, because you're right, it is absolutely interesting. There's a lot of momentum that's been them going on, but it masks a, a, again, you have your frustrations in the China-Africa discourse and I have mine. And one of my frustrations, when we talk about trade, we often talk about Africa as a country. China-Africa trade is $254 billion. That's what it was in 2021. They think this year it's going to cross 254 and even go to a new record, but the trade is highly distorted. In many respects, it's a very extractive relationship. The bulk of exports from Africa come from just five countries to, to China, mostly in the extractive sector. Uh, the vast majority of the imports go to about five countries. And a lot of other countries, dozens of other countries have, again, lots of imports, but very few exports. So when we talk about agriculture, that's not going to close the trade gap in Kenya, which is something like $139 million in exports and $3 billion in imports. So all the avocados in the world aren't going to help close that gap because agriculture is a low-value product. What can be done from your point of view to move African countries up the value chain so that the exports have more value and they can have a more healthy, balanced trade relationship? And we're seeing some of this now in Zimbabwe, where the new law is requiring that lithium be processed prior to export. And so that's very encouraging in one respect. But is there any discussion that you have with Chinese and African stakeholders in the trade relationship about this value chain improvement or enhancement? Absolutely. You know, actually, this is really the top issue which comes up in those discussions. Uh, one of the reasons I went to China at the end of the year was to host kind of regular African ambassadors in China retreat. And this, the question about value addition was really top of the agenda in, in that meeting. Um, and that, that was that was African ambassadors just kind of coordinating amongst themselves and also having uh, key African experts and organizations uh, engage with the ambassadors. That was the opportunity uh, that we that we tried to provide. And it's the value addition is not just an agenda from the aspect of African countries engagement with China. It is a key priority, a key African priority, and it has been for many years. Those kinds of policies like uh, Zimbabwe's policy for, for lithium is new, yes. But it is envisioned under, for example, these kinds of policies are envisioned under, for example, the African mining vision, which has been around since 2009. So the fact that we do have a number of countries actually starting to implement these kinds of policies, they're getting a bit more, I would say they're getting a bit more confidence to be able to do so. We've seen Indonesia do so quite significant, quite uh, significantly with nickel and successfully, it seems. And so they're building on each other. And I think this is what, in the discussions, in fact, I mean, a number of countries talked about how they will be um, reducing and aiming to reduce, either through banning or quotas or regulation, the exporting of rural products to China and to other markets. And it's something that China obviously needs to not only know, but also start to invest in as early as possible. And I think one of the things for 2023 will be trying to engage, and certainly we will be trying to do that, engage with Chinese investors in these areas to say, look, can you start to actually invest in the processing, whether it's kind of end processing or even just kind of first or second stage processing of different materials. Take the avocados. We've been doing some research and we'll be putting out, out very soon on the number of type, the various different types of avocado, processed avocado products that are consumed in the Chinese market. In many ways, many more types of avocado products than, let's say, in the UK or US. They are consumed in significant quantities. And so if you had African and Chinese investors or even other foreign investors investing into avocado products, 
in Kenya, for instance, now that there is a kind of Kenya hub for avocado export to China, that would be something which would then start to transform that relationship. And those investments are not huge. Those investments can all, don't don't need you know six years or so to to actually see themselves. They can be done within a year or two. Um, so these are the sorts of things that we 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 think do need to be facilitated. And I think we will see that happening. Um, more and more in 2023. But of course, it's up to African governments to really kind of push for that too. You know, in, in your interactions with, with African stakeholders, do you see innovative ideas and innovative kind of uh, approaches emerging about how to to possibly, you know, kickstart some of these initiatives, particularly around, you know, like like one of the issues that, that many have pointed out that, that, that holds back mineral processing um, in Africa has just been the, the, the massive kind of backlog in electrification um and you know so 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 therefore the the discussion about moving Africa up the mineral value chain also becomes a discussion about electricity provision um so do, do you see kind of you know in, interesting kind of innovative ideas emerging among African stakeholders about how these kind of related and adjacent kind of challenges can be overcome in the process I think there are lots of innovative ideas coming from African stakeholders in particular um and even African institutions so you know, Organizations like um, Africa Climate Foundation, organizations like uh, AGRA, um, who, are, who are on on agriculture side, they are coming up with many of these ideas. And as in African-based institutions, African-owned institutions too. I think what is what is really challenging, though, and I think this is a general point about when we're thinking about investment, many many African stakeholders, when it comes to things like feasibility studies or or even kind of even your initial kind of concept pitches, etc., will rely on foreign firms and others who don't necessarily know African countries or don't necessarily think outside of the box on these issues and also might not know Chinese markets. And or if they are relying from the Chinese side, if they're relying on the Chinese feasibility, they also don't really understand the Chinese, mar- the African markets and the degree to how large they are, for example, you know, where African people move, etc. So the, the feasibility studies for these innovative, for these innovative ideas often are lacking and kind of in, in a very sort of old style business model and things like commodities. If you look at a feasibility study for a certain rail, for example, those feasibility studies tend to be based on a very, very kind of, okay, you're only going to be exporting commodities. And so it depends. The feasibility of that project comes down to literally, is a commodity price going to increase or is it not? And in fact, that's, and that ends up being how profitability is determined. And it's a terrible way to determine profitability. So I think one of the, one of the things that, that African um, organizations need to increasingly do is to really kind of get more sophisticated with these things also draw lessons from how Chinese um, markets have operated, draw lessons from how other Asian markets have operated and and use those as well. Uh, and the innovat- innovation within the African continent and the vision within the African continent for things like value addition to really incorporate those into, into the business models more directly right at the beginning rather than later on. Let's close our discussion looking at some of the new Chinese actors in the China-Africa relationship and again, one of the, the the frustrating parts of again of the discourse, you and I are we're rehashing some of our old uh, frustrations here. But is that when people talk about Africa, they talk about it as a singular entity and, and overlooking, you know, fifty four, fifty five countries, you know, countless cultures, languages, and what and the diversity that's there. The same is true when we talk about China as well. 
Most people, when they think of China, they think of Xi Jinping, Beijing, the Central Committee, and everything is done by state-owned enterprises. And the reality is, is that especially now, 25 years into the China-Africa relationship, uh, it doesn't look anything like it did back in the early 2000s when it was, in fact, spearheaded by large state-owned companies. Today, you've talked about Hunan, uh, which is a province in south-central China, and by far the most energetic and dynamic place when it comes to China-Africa relations. And that really, you know, makes a lot of brows furrow around like, Hunan, where's that? And Changsha is the capital of Hunan. Uh, you've talked about the festivals and fairs that they've had there for trade. There's also, they've done a coffee market. They've got a cocoa exchange. They've done a lot of currency swaps. They've got the new air bridge coming from Addis Ababa directly to Changsha. Uh, Chile and other agricultural products are going right through Changsha. So much that's going on. One of the things that Cobus and I like to do in our daily newsletter is track all of the announcements coming from all the other places around China that are doing some very interesting things in the China-Africa space. This is something that you and Development Reimagined have been promoting for years, and not just in Changsha, but also Chongqing, Shanghai, even Guangdong and Guangzhou, and many other parts of China as well. Give us a, an overview now of some of the key actors that people should be focusing on beyond just the big state-owned companies like China Road and Bridge Corporation and, of course, the central government. Help us understand the landscape in China a little bit better. Yeah, I think, I think, and and I think this is going to be very important in 2023 because, you know, as China reopens, we're going to see many more Chinese business people uh, going to African countries. There was a really nice recent article actually on Six Tone about a number of Chinese people, young professionals who are also moving to African countries for various reasons. And by the way, just a little heads up, I'm glad you brought that up. Next week, we will be interviewing the author of that article. So we'll have her perspective on exactly that. So I, I just, I'm very excited about that. So sorry to interrupt you. No, 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 absolutely. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more Chinese business people going to African countries to kind of seek out opportunities as well as, as well as, you know, create more um, by, by, by simply going and, and making those deals. Now, and I think it's going to be more as in very important for African stakeholders, governments to try to get a stronger understanding of where they're from, what they, and in particular, what they offer. You know, Changsha, for example, if we're talking about Changsha, they, as we said earlier, they're the kind of host of the main expo, which happens kind of China-Africa expo that happens every two years. Um, they're also the uh, the destination, one of the five destinations for Ethiopian airlines uh, for their cargo. And so uh, that, you know, that kind of thing matters. But I would also say then, you know, Guangzhou matters as well as where many people, uh, many Africans will uh, obviously know uh, for for the uh, Canton Fair and so on, which is again happening again, uh, both in person and online this year. And then Yiwu, which is also very important in Hangzhou, uh, where Hangzhou being a kind of center of e, Hangzhou being a center of e-commerce and Yiwu being very close uh, with uh, a lot of small commodities, all of those small kind of toys, etc., that you see um, kind of sent from China to African countries. You've got a massive hub uh, of African business there as well, but also uh, Chinese factories outlets uh, there too. So I think, um, but and, and investors from different provinces also have different perspectives. So Xinjiang have particular perspectives on, um, Xinjiang um, investors and companies will have particular perspectives on cotton 
um, production and also on uh, on energy, renewable energy, uh, because they're a big source of that. Uh, Fujian, uh, key for any African country that is looking to uh, understand how tea markets work and similarly, um, similarly Hangzhou as well. So uh, each province has something and they're as large as some African countries. I mean, um, Beijing itself is, uh, is extremely, uh, is, has a larger GDP or as close a GDP to, uh, to South Africa and Nigeria separately. So it is important to engage with just provinces. The former Kenyan ambassador was telling us in an interview that we actually wrote up on CAP that their strategy was really to try to engage with particular provinces so that uh, they, can, they can get the most out of that and it's enough, right? I would say that would be key. And one more, one key player that I think will be very important in all of this and who do have a kind of very large kind of reach is going to be the China Africa Business Council. They have a membership of over a thousand Chinese companies who all have interest in Africa, as many of them have already invested in African countries. And they are given the kind of push, especially from African countries, to do public private partnerships and also to bring in foreign direct investment and manufacturing from China into that value addition. China Africa Business Council are a really, really significant player in terms of trying to encourage that. So I expect a lot of, there'll be some, a number of delegation visits and so on, which will make a, which could be of, of significant um, use uh, for, for African countries over the next year. From then, so as you as you um, mentioned, you know now that China is opening up, it seems like there's there's um, the opportunity for the the reengagement of people to people exchange. And I was wondering, you know, like we, we've we've had several guests over the years, kind of arguing in different ways that that African capacity on on China, particularly African government capacity on on dealing with China, hasn't really increased as quickly as it should have and but partly of you know kind of due to you know a, a, a very a, a, like several issues one included one being that that despite the fact that there's many africans who have studied in china there isn't there aren't necessarily the pipeline set up the kind of employment pipeline set up to then get that expertise into the government but you know so so we've, we've heard many claims you know kind of about low african capacity in relation to china but you of course work very closely with african representatives in china and i was wondering you know what, what that looks like from your perspective like what, what has african capacity to deal with china actually improved over the last decade say yeah i would say it has it has increased significantly and and definitely as development reimagined, we are trying to play a role in that in terms of trying to improve that capacity, in particular in China, by trying to bring together African representatives to learn from each other. Um, and even on things like trade, you know, kind of get them to exchange experience, you know, Rwanda exchanged their experience on importing chili or Kenya exchanged their experience on importing the avocados. You know what went well, what went what went more, what was more challenging, and and help others to do the same in a more accelerated way. Um, so, so I think that is happening. We're seeing also on a kind of sub-regional basis the the ambassadors get together a lot as well, and um, including with Chinese stakeholders and other African stakeholders. They they do a lot, and there's more that they're doing um, over the past few years as well. But also, I'd say that the utility of African students, for example, and I think you know, first of all, <laughs> I would also say there's not many governments that have significant, seriously good Chinese capacity, right? Um, I don't think it's a, a specifically African um, challenge. 
uh, there's there's more to be done by everyone. But nevertheless, I think the 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 challenge with African students uh, in China is many of them just simply return home having had that that experience. We of course employ several. It's very important to us. They've got some great unique experience, and some of them do go into into government. But one of the many African students have just gone to China on their own, so they don't necessarily have government links. You know, there's less as a proportion. There's less African students going to China on scholarships, for instance. Um, so they don't always have links into government. Government jobs are very difficult to come across. And so, you know, they're competing against people that have had years and years and years of experience, for instance, in, in order to get into the civil service. So I don't think it's that simple um, in terms of utilising those students. But what's, what is increasingly happening is that many African students are being able, there have been recent changes in the Chinese law, uh, which enable African students to actually work in China quite soon after they have, for example, studied a master's degree. And so they can get jobs in China and that can give them some extra experience. In addition, they're also being taken up by Chinese companies operating in African countries. Uh, you know, I'm, we're very familiar, of course, with Star Times, for example, but there's more Chinese companies like Transgen and so on who are also employing African students who are able to kind of then use their skills and build that capacity. And so they can also influence from from a different angle, not necessarily directly with government and being involved in kind of bilateral deals, etc., but more influencing the way that things are done. And I think that will increase. And, um, and with the resumption of African students to China in 2023, let's see how quickly that happens. Not many are being, not many visas for students are being issued generally um, at the moment. It's on a kind of fairly ad hoc basis for particularly universities. Once that resumes, let's see, let's see where that goes. I think, but it, I think it is a really important area for um, consideration and important area for, for, for governments to really kind of take advantage of if they can. Definitely. Hannah, you've given us so much to think about in this year ahead. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Hannah Ryder is the CEO of Development Reimagined, an African-led international development consultancy that is active. Again, what's, what's unique about DR is, again, equally active on the African side and the Chinese side. And that, to me, is what makes them so interesting in the work that you guys do. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and to get in touch with you, where can they follow you? And also, if they want to get uh, their hands on some of the great research that you and the DR team are doing, where can they find that? Well, you can follow me personally on Twitter It's um, and, and LinkedIn. My Twitter handle is HM for Mother Rider. And then but perhaps more interestingly, uh, maybe follow our development reimagined Twitter handle and also LinkedIn. Um, and also we're on Instagram too. So um, dev reimagined at DEV reimagined um, is the key place to find us. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Hannah, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us and Happy New Year. It's a pleasure. Happy New Year. Thank you so much, Eric and Kobus. <laughs> Kobus, you know what's most interesting about Hannah's comments, and I was reflecting at the same time on our conversation with Jude that we had at the end of last year, is how optimistic they are. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 fantastic to hear. You know, kind of particularly because South Africa itself is going through a very kind of gloomy moment. You know, so so it is. You know, kind of it has a particular kind of like like it's a it's a breath of fresh air. You know, to to just to just be like, no, okay, you know, the world isn't hundred percent on fire. It, to be optimistic today is almost to be contrarian. You know, it's so easy right now to get, you know, bogged down 
into the negativity. And there's a lot of reason to be negative. And I think longtime listeners of our show and readers of our newsletter will know that I am at the forefront of negativity. <laughs> uh, but at the, So I think in many ways, Hannah and Jude, but Hannah particularly, challenge this thinking, that we can't get into the silo thinking that it's all screwed and that's there's no hope. And what I particularly find very, very valuable about, about Hannah's work and, and her contribution is that, uh, you know, like all of, like, like so much of it is about challenging calcified thinking you know and these kind of like like knee-jerk kind of assumptions about about african economies about african countries about you know kind of about debt for example and so on like it's it's so useful you know to just have a kind of a reality check and to to cut through all of this old school discourse that we just that that keeps kind of fogging the conversation yeah but that being said i mean the the types of ideas that she and others are trying to put forward namely things like the borrowers club are going up against institutions and establishments that are centuries old and, and are deeply embedded and are going to be incredibly difficult to change. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that that's not a reason to try. But Wall Street and the, and the street in London are, are not inclined to accommodate anything other than their bottom line. And in many respects, we've seen the World Bank and the IMF behave similarly. I mean, again, what we look at the debt restructuring process over the past three years since the beginning of the pandemic. It is nothing short of shameful, shameful as to what the G20 and the big powers have done, which is virtually nothing. And China is, is also in that as well. They have looked after their own interests over those of hundreds of millions of people of, you know, in poor developing countries who, again, didn't necessarily agree to take on all this debt and now are asked to pay for it. And the, the, the creditors are, have not done anything. So I think asking any of these creditors for benevolence of any kind uh, is naive. Now, that's not what I'm saying necessarily that Hannah is doing, uh, but I think that these are very tough, tough institutions to go up against and to ask them to change. They don't like reform. That's just something we've seen over and over again. And they're not going to change unless they're forced to. So this is where public policy comes into it, where people like the Biden administration and in, in the UK as well. And we have not seen any public policy shift on that as well over the past few years. So I, I totally 100% love what they're doing. I am skeptical that they're going to make quick progress. But at the same time, you have to start somewhere. And this is where it starts. Well, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. It's like none of this progress is quick, um, but but it is it is crucial, and it should be should be pointed out that you know that that what is frequently thought of in places like London and Washington and New York as just common sense wisdom frequently hides a, a big chunk of structural racism as well. Um, and and this is this is, you know because that kind of institutionalized structural racism that many African countries and many African economies face, and that then manifests in the form of 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 you know kind of. of of uh, phenomena like kind of like these biased risk premiums that that Anna was 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 pointing out, and and there's there's only one way of challenging it, which is to challenge it. You know, kind of it, it goes from below. It takes years, but but it's 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 it is possible to challenge it. Um, you know, a, a big example is is the fact that it looks like they, there's a, a chance that the African Union might become a permanent member of the G20, which you know, kind of like like I mean, no one has derided the G20 more than us, but at the same time. 
time, you know, kind of there's a big difference between the African Union being an invited observer and the African Union being an actual full member. You know, that that is a significant difference. And, um, you know, like, it's it, it's not going to change everything, but it will change some things. And, and it, ha- it has to be chipped away at, like, over years and years. No, but when you have a seat at the table, okay, and you're not just an observer on the outside. And in fact, if you see the photos of the G20 meetings, they literally have a main table, and then around that main table are the observers. So if the Africans and the African Union are able to sit at the main table, okay, that can be an agenda-setting upgrade. And that's really important, because what we've seen over the past three years is that debt relief and the common framework in the DSSI and all of these initiatives at the G20 have literally been brushed aside. We noted last year and the year before that they literally cut and paste from one meeting and then six months later, another meeting, they cut and pasted the text on debt relief. So if the African Union, and I think it's the African Commission, sits at the table, that's the kind of thing that they can go, whoa, no, we got to focus on these issues that are important to us. And that's what I'm hoping will change. And I'm hoping that we're going to see a very strong assertive voice because, you know, the G20 is a very contentious forum now, given the great power politics that are going on. And so we're going to have to see if the African Commission is going to be effective. It's going to have to really stand up and shout from the rafters. Because right now at these G20 meetings, it's Russia, it's China, it's the US, it's the Europeans, it's the European Union, it's the UK. These are all the issues that are dominating the agenda. So the African Union and the African Commission are going to have to really force themselves onto that agenda if they want to break through. And hopefully, this is one of the areas where China can be their ally. Yes, I mean, you know, it is notable that uh, in his African tour, Chingang is going to be meeting with Musa Fakimama, the the head of the African Union Commission. So, you know, that would be a very significant kind of like, you know, kind of like meeting, I think. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, for all of, of the kind of criticism and eye rolling that, that China's um, challenge, challenge of current kind of global order kind of elicits in, in places like Washington, you know, that the, the people who would be winning from, from a, a, a reform of the globe of the international order would be Africa. So, you know, so, so, it, you know, it would be very, very revealing to see how that develops over the next few years. And it's noteworthy to point out that this is one of the few areas where both Xi Jinping and Joe Biden are on the same page. So Xi Jinping used his G20 speech in Bali to advocate for the admission of the African Union to the G20. And Biden said it at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. So that doesn't happen very often, and that's something significant. So I think having that, that alignment from the U.S. and China really helps the case. Now, India is an X factor here. So the G20, I think, is going to be chaired by India this year. And, and that is going to be a really big you know, factor, given the fact that uh, China-India ties are bad and getting worse. We're going to talk about that in our other show on the China Global South podcast again a lot this year. Let's leave our conversation there. So happy that we're back on to our regular schedule again. We have two shows a week coming out. Every week we have a China Africa show and then we also do a China Global South show that comes into the China Africa feed because a lot of folks have said that they want to hear what's going on in other regions. If you only want to get the China Global South show, you can sign up for that also on Apple Podcasts. Also, we'd love to invite everybody to join and support our efforts in, in our daily journalism that we're doing 
Uh, throughout the Global South, we've got folks in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East now who are contributing in Arabic, French, and English, also to our daily brief newsletter that goes out to governments, to companies, to universities and scholars and analysts around the world. If you'd like to sign up for that, you get 30 days free. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe, and you will see all of the subscription options are there. We, again, are very grateful to all of our subscribers and all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you for everything that you're doing to make this show possible. So, Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>